Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Chapter 1. Alpost. Harry Potter was a highly unusual boy in many ways. For one thing, he hated the summer holidays more than any other time of year. For another, he really wanted to do his homework. But was... I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, Season 3. I'm really excited to be here for Season 3 because Prisoner of Azkaban, it's where the series gets just... It goes from amazing to amazing. I think a lot of people have been looking forward to it, so I hope we do it justice. And we couldn't have done it without everyone supporting the show. So thank you so much for spreading the word, for donating, and helping us get into Season 3. Vanessa, let's get on with the show. Do you have a story for us to open Season 3? I do. When I was 23 years old, I remember sitting and I felt a depression coming on, which was a common thing. And I remember thinking... I can't do this again when I have this feeling this is not a life worth living. For some reason, that was the time when I was 23 that after years of dealing with these things that I finally went to the doctor and I got diagnosed pretty quickly and got sent home with medication. And then (laughs) came the hard part. And the hard part was deciding whether or not to start taking those pills. You know, medications came with side effects, and the biggest side effect that I was really scared of was loss of creativity was something that a lot of antidepressants, SSRIs, can put at risk. And I remember it felt like an existential threat. And this is probably a false dichotomy, but this is what it felt like to me at the time. Do I take these pills and give up my creativity, or do I keep not taking these pills and live in constant fear of being in just absolute desolation. And I was making this decision while in one of the worst depressions of my life. So it was already not a great time. And just a week went by and I was talking to everybody I could talk to and basically begging everybody to tell me what to do. And so I called my best friend, Kim, who's been my best friend since I was five years old. And so I called her and I asked her what I should do. And she said, oh, that's easy. It's actually not your decision. It's my decision. And you have to go on the medication because I can't trust you if you don't go on this medication. There are things I'm going to want to ask you to do. And the stakes are just getting higher. You know, I'm going to get married one day and I'm going to have kids one day. And I want you to be my maid of honor. And I want you to be the godmother to my children. And if you are unreliable to yourself, how can I count on you to follow through for me? So this isn't your choice. And you are to go on meds. 
And I just remember the relief of somebody saying to me, this is the right decision and I'm going to decide it for you. And the mercy of that, nobody would do it. Nobody would force me to do one thing or another. And she was like, I'll take the responsibility. If it's the wrong meds, I'll sit with you until you get on the right ones. If this is a mistake, we'll deal with it together. But I'm telling you, this is the thing you absolutely have to do. And we got off the phone and I opened the pill packet and took the pill. And I've been on this medication ever since. And it's just looking back, it was the greatest act of mercy I've ever seen. And I'm so grateful to her for seeing that she needed to do something that wasn't actually within her power to do. She needed to claim an authority that she didn't have and make something that felt like the toughest decision of my life and made it into a non-decision. So I'm really excited to talk about this with you, Casper, where we see mercy in this chapter and when are people enacting mercy within their their rightful authority and when are they stepping out of it and when is it mercy without intention? And I think this is an incredibly complicated idea and that we're not just going to see it in this chapter, but it's going to be with us throughout this entire book. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for sharing that story. I would argue that mercy is such a defining theme of this book, especially as we think about how Pettigrew's betrayal of his friends is then shown mercy by Harry at the very end of this book. There's something very powerful about that theme of mercy to start with in this book and that it ends with. So I want to come back to that as we come to the end of the book. Before we get into that conversation too much, though, are you ready to do your 30-second recap of the chapter? Yes, I am ready. Luckily, this one is not too long, so I feel I can give it a good go. I believe in you. Thanks. On your mark. Get set. Go. So it's into the summer holidays, and Harry is at home at the Dursleys, and he's very unhappy, and he's doing his homework, and he's reading um, Matilda Bagshot's history. And um, he's having to be very quiet, because if the Dursleys hear him, then it's bad news. And then um, uh, Hedwig's gone away, but but she's allowed to be in the cage. And she comes back, and there's post from... um, Because it's his birthday. Yay! And um, there's post from Ron and Hermione, and uh, and a book that's a monster from Hagrid. And and Percy's head boy. Well done. Percy would love the way you ended that. I mean, like, let's end with the big news, (laughs) right? (laughs) I'm actually surprised by the title of this book, why it's not called... Percy Weasley (laughs) and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Percy Weasley and the Head Boy. Vanessa, you ready for your 30-second challenge? I am. Three, two, one, go. We start with all this creepy history about witches and wizards and the way that they used to get tortured. And then, of course, we're with Harry and the Dursleys. And, oh, my God, what an amazing comparison. And then it turns out that it's Harry's birthday and he didn't even notice because he's used to not celebrating. But then it turns out that he celebrates and Hedwig comes with a gift from Hermione. And then Ron sends a gift and it turns out that he's in Egypt because the Weasleys won all of this money. And that's really exciting. And then Hagrid sends a really creepy book. And Harry, for the very first time in his entire life, is happy that he has a birthday and he just gets to sort of be a regular kid. Yay. Yay. Let's all go to Egypt. (laughs) Do we have listeners in Cairo? Live show. Okay, so Casper, one thing that you and I both noted is that there's a great act of mercy in this chapter with Vernon allowing Hedwig to fly and hunt at night. Right, which is different from the previous summer where Hedwig was locked up. And was basically a prisoner. Right. So this is, I think, an amazing example for us to start exploring what mercy is. How do you see this as an act of mercy? 
Well, we could read it as mercy because here's a clear power difference, right? Vernon and Petunia are in charge of the house. Harry is a child. Hedwig is Harry's pet. And so in this house, it's their rules. And so they could clearly have just said, you know, back in the cage, sorry, Hedders, you're stuck. But this time, they're letting Hedwig fly free and roam around. And so you could see that as a power or authority figure giving clemency or changing the rules because it's nicer for the owl who's living in this situation. But I also feel like super complicated about it because he's not doing it because he cares about Hedwig in any way. Right. So the question is, does mercy have to be sort of intended in order for it to be mercy? I think so, right? Like there's got to be some element of forgiveness or or at least compassion. So the way that I learned the word mercy as a child is the way that I'm guessing several of our listeners did too, which is playing the game mercy with my brothers, right? Where you are basically hurting your sibling and whoever says mercy first loses. Kids can be so lovely, can't they? <laughs> I mean, it's a theological lesson. We weren't <laughs> playing for fun. We were playing for the theology. So when you say mercy, what you're saying is I give up and you're asking for the mercy of the other person. So you're acknowledging they have more power than you. They have more strength than you. You gave up first and they then win. But it is an act of mercy because they stop hurting you. So I don't think that intention has anything to do with mercy. The more we do this podcast, the more I believe that taking the action is the thing that matters in intention often helps and often makes the quality of the action better, but I'm not sure it matters. If you free someone from prison, whether or not you believe that they deserve to be freed, does it matter? Vernon, this is still an act of mercy. This is It is received as an act of mercy. Okay, well, that is super interesting because I think this is where we get into a complex understanding of what mercy is. Maybe there's two ways of understanding it. One is the kind of more traditional understanding that there is compassion or clemency or some act of care. The intention, as you say, is really clear. But we can also experience something as a gift and say, what a mercy, right? Like, what a mercy that it didn't rain on my wedding day. Like, weather didn't care. But I think you're right. Like, I think we need to make more complex how we think about mercy. But I do think there's a truer mercy When not only if it's experienced as a mercy, but it's also given as a mercy. Like if it's done with intention. I mean, I'm thinking of in this chapter, we see Hedwig knowing that Harry's birthday is approaching, knowing that he's not going to get any outpost. And Hedwig leaves to go and like remind Hermione and Ron to send him something and even finds Hermione in France. Like, I don't know, Hedwig's got some sort of internal Hermione GPS. But right, like that, that feels like an even more merciful thing to do. So two things. One, yes, it's a generative mercy, right? Because Hedwig, by doing this act of mercy, relieves Hermione of the stress of how is she going to get this present to Harry. Harry then gets the gift, which at this point is a double gift of the gift from Hermione and also the gift of the kindness of Hedwig to go and like find Hermione. It is like mercy upon mercy. So I think that there you see that the intention can add to the quality, the like gooeyness quality of the mercy. However, no, because if we wait for pure acts of mercy, we are going to miss 99% of the mercy around us. If we wait for the moments in which Hedwig, a literal white bird, right? Like this like sign of purity and goodness, 
Like if we wait for things like that, there will be so little mercy in our lives. So I think that there's nothing wrong with looking at Uncle Vernon and saying, this is an act of mercy and I'm going to take it from you. There are other ways for Vernon to make it so Hedwig isn't a ruckus in his house. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't get violent. And I'm not saying we should give points to someone for not being evil and awful, but that is a mercy. And I think that it only behooves us to notice it. Yeah, I think you're completely right. So speaking of owls, another act of mercy, to my point of like a more complicated mercy, is with poor Errol. So Hedwig and this anonymous Hogwarts barn owl carry Errol from, like Errol is struggling. Like somewhere near Egypt, it gets really rough. And Errol's aging, right? Like Errol's tired. And so like somewhere near Italy probably is just like, I'm done. Just give me some olive oil and like delicious cheese. I'm just going to sit here and chill. But like this barn owl and Hedwig are like, no, no, let's bring you home. And so they carry him all the way to Privet Drive where he just like collapses and, like, one eye opens and he's just like, hey. (laughs) The British and American versions are really different, but (laughs) fascinating. (laughs) But the barn owl from Hogwarts, Harry offers the barn owl some water, and the Hogwarts owl is like, I don't need your water, and just flies off. Ruffles its feathers. Ruffles its feathers, like, and judges Errol and flies off. So this is an act of mercy that this Hogwarts owl helped, and I don't think that that owl does it with any grace or any intention for mercy. But without the owl doing that, Errol wouldn't have made it, right? Yeah, he would have just been in his vineyard. <laughs> Errol's like, I found a place in Capri. Well, so, I love I mean, it here. <laughs> what? <laughs> Please. I finally escaped. But this is important because we're seeing, I mean, right, for Harry, it is a mercy. And so, so often the same thing that happens can be experienced so differently. And I guess that's not news, but it's making me think with more complexity about even the nature of mercy in its most formal function. Because usually we think if someone is given clemency or mercy is shown, that's a good thing and like, hooray. But mercy can also mean that justice is not carried out. And so if I was on the side of someone who'd been a victim and now the perpetrator is being shown mercy, like I wonder if I would always be big-hearted enough to see it that way. Maybe it would feel more like injustice. It's one of my favorite Lincoln quotes in a letter to Ulysses S. Grant. He said, now that the war is over, I don't want there to be a lot of hangings as a celebration to end this war. And Grant said exactly your point of like hangings can be what people need in order to move on. Mm. And even that, it's like Lincoln had lost his appetite for violence. Mercy can be motivated by so many different things. It's so interesting, Vanessa, because those people who were condemned to hang, probably many of them for good reason, and I am not advocating for the death penalty, but war crimes, right? Like serious business. committed war crimes. Yeah. And so to give clemency, to show mercy in that situation, in many ways can be seen as being complicit with war crimes. But I think it also reveals that Showing mercy is actually a way of remembering our humanity. Yes, there's an instinct for revenge, but there's also an instinct for forgiveness. And I guess what I'm asking us to do is to think about for every time we're following through the rules and punishing someone, perhaps equally we should be looking to forgive and to show mercy that if we're just doing one of those things all of the time, we're doing something wrong. 
Yeah, I think about that a lot in terms of raising children. It's like, when do you make exceptions? It's important for a child to have a routine. So you make them go to bed at eight o'clock every night. And then every once in a while, you have to be like, no, you know, this is more fun than going to bed at eight. And we get to stay up. You have to have a bedtime and you have to have exceptions to the bedtime. And if you don't have a bedtime, that's probably not great. And if you don't ever have any exceptions to the bedtime, that's probably not great either. And I think, you know, there's no worse characterization in all of this than Voldemort. Throughout this book, throughout this series, Voldemort never shows compassion, never shows mercy. He is one extreme of that. But here's the interesting thing. I think Harry is the other extreme because Harry refuses to kill. Harry shows mercy to Pettigrew. Okay, that one works out okay. But he uses Expelliarmus instead of a more deadly curse. And because of that decision, Moody dies. Other people suffer on his behalf constantly because I think he maybe he shows too much mercy. And I'm not even sure Pettigrew really works out. I mean, we'll talk about this more later. But because Harry shows Peter Pettigrew mercy, Sirius has to go on the run. And Voldemort comes back embodied. Right. So I think that too much mercy is really not always a good thing. If you constantly have mercy for your child's bedtime, you are going to raise a tyrant who never gets enough sleep. These things have real consequences. And it's complicated. And the only thing that makes mercy as a decision clear as the right or wrong decision is hindsight. So like luck is involved in whether or not mercy is successful. It's not an easy thing. Right. Absolutely. Okay, Casper, so where else do you see mercy in this chapter? Vanessa, I was really struck by the fact that in all three birthday cards from Ron, Hermione, and Hagrid, they all say something to the effect of, I hope the muggles are treating you okay, you know, which on the one hand feels like a a nice little nicety to say at the end of a birthday card. But to me, it also felt like they were abdicating a responsibility. And it really struck me in comparison to your story that you shared in the way that Kim wasn't your doctor and she didn't have control over you in any way, right? She's not your boss or anything. And yet she kind of imposed herself and took the power in order to then give you mercy. And I think here we see all three of them, Ron, Hermione, and especially Hagrid, perhaps, they in some ways have an opportunity. You know, they could come back, not with a flying car this time, but one telephone call and then they stop trying to reach out to Harry. Is that really good enough? I feel like sometimes, even if we don't have the authority to do so, we can step into leadership and show mercy. Otherwise, we're all just bystanders and there's Harry feeling dreadful for a whole summer on his own. I'm definitely going to defend Hagrid. I think you're right. I think that we all need to be trying to intervene more than we do. But Hagrid at least knows that the reason that Harry is with the Dursleys is because he has to be with family for long enough for a spell that his mother cast in dying for his son, right? Like there's complicated magic here. And I feel like Hagrid knows that. And I don't know how much more we could ask from Ron and Hermione. And I at least want to honor how scary it is to feel like you might just be making something worse. And this is something that we do all the time. I remember, you know, when I was pretty young, a colleague of mine came into work after her mother had died. And I asked her, you know, I asked her how she was doing and said that I was sorry. And she said to me, she was like, it is such a relief to have somebody ask me how I'm doing. Nobody will look at me and nobody will ask. 
And nobody has bad intentions in not asking, right? We all cared about this woman. We all knew her mother had passed away. But you don't want to remind someone at work. And, like, maybe that's not what they want to hear. And I think I just got lucky. I could have been the 10th person to ask her and it would have driven her nuts. Or I could have been the first person to ask her and she could have looked at me and been like, that's really inappropriate and it's the last thing I want to be thinking about right now. So maybe Hermione and Ron are just being honest about their powerlessness. They could say, let me know if there's anything that I can do to help. Ron could say, come to Egypt with us. Like there could be all these empty acts of mercy that Hermione and Ron could be saying in these letters. But I feel like it's honest by just saying like, we're thinking of you and I hope it's not getting to you. So if we forgive Hagrid and maybe Ron and Hermione also, but I think your exact point is in the how impersonal McGonagall's letter to Harry is. Oh, this is the letter that he gets from Hogwarts with, like, the permission slip to go to Hogsmeade. Right. So Harry gets his, you know, list of books, which, like, his traditional list of books with the permission slip to Hogsmeade. And McGonagall just sends, like, the regular form letter. Now, why she knows that Harry is not going to get permission to go to Hogsmeade from the Dursleys, why isn't there some, like, handwritten note of, like, I know this is complicated for you. She might also know about Sirius and that he's definitely not going to get permission to go to Hogsmeade. But it's got to be sensitive sending a permission slip home to a child with, like, abusive guardians. Oh, this is interesting because, you know, she's probably got some sort of quick quill system that's doing all of these letters all at once and is just trying to fit it into a busy day and is not writing personal notes to anyone. And I think it tells us that systems can't give mercy, individuals can. Like, no bureaucratic system or computer system is going to make an exception and is going to know when to say, okay, it's past 8 p.m., but you're allowed to stay up because grandma's here. Like, you can only have an individual who can make that choice. And that's why I think mercy is so human. And exactly to this point, what is annoying about this is that it is pretending to be personal. It says, Dear Mr. Potter, and she says, Yours sincerely, right? Like, it's a personalized quick quill thing. If it was Dear Gryffindor student, then he would know that, like, it just happened to arrive on his birthday, but this was a form letter. But it is the performance of this being a personal thing that makes the lack of mercy involved in it all the more offensive and hurtful, right? Right. I mean, the thing that they just went through together, right? Like, McGonagall was just teary-eyed watching Harry emerge from near death. Like, there's no acknowledgement of the trauma that he's just gone through, of their personal relationship. And I'm sure she's justifying it as professionalism, but, like, Propriety can excuse all sorts of cowardly behavior. And I think, you know, there are big mercies and small mercies. And just a little P.S. hope you're doing okay would have been a small mercy to give. If there had been a stapled note that was like, I know it might be difficult for you to get this signed by your guardian. Let's have a conversation when you get back. Just say true things. You don't have to talk about your feelings. But like, I'm happy to have this conversation with you face to face when you get back. Right? Absolutely. Vanessa, one of my highlights of season two was learning about the practice of florilegia. And we're going to continue with that in this episode. But I want to remind ourselves what this whole idea of sacred reading is about. 
Sure. So the whole idea is that if we practice treating a text as sacred, we can practice treating our lives and one another as sacred. And by practicing treating something as sacred, we mean three things. One, we mean having faith in the text or in one another or in ourselves. And by faith, we mean believing that the more time we spend with the text, the more gifts it will give us, that it will only bring good into our lives. Even when we're struggling with it, that in and of itself is a good thing. The second thing is rigor and ritual. So for us, that's the practices that we do every week, you know, Florilegia, Lectio Divina, Ignatian Spirituality, Pardes, etc. So that is the rigor. And then the third part is community. So we try to enact that both by sitting here together and not having this be a podcast where either one of us does it alone. But that's also a big reason why we incorporate listeners' voices and why we have guests on, because in order for something to be sacred, you need a community around you to lift you up, to hold you to the highest standard, to make sure that you don't become a fundamentalist in your point of view, to you know really engage with you. And so that's why we do what we do and how we do what we do. <laughs> so let's dive into Florilegia. And just to remind ourselves, this is a wonderful centuries-old practice that monastic communities would have done where they would keep little sparklets, words or phrases that really stood out from the page where they might have noted those down either in the Psalms or elsewhere in biblical texts, and then to compare those two and look for what meaning could be gleaned about the relationship of those different sparklets. So this week, I chose just a little sparklet from Ron's letter, and it's his PS, and it just says, Percy's head boy. What did you find? I picked a longer, flowerier one, silhouetted against the moon and growing larger every moment. Oh, okay. Let me read those two together. Percy's head boy, silhouetted against the golden moon and growing larger every moment. That's really interesting. What, what do you see in this relationship? My first reaction is that is exactly what Percy would want the news of him being head boy to be. <laughs> Right, is to be silhouetted against the moon and growing larger every moment. <laughs> like this, these two sentences next to each other are Percy's dream come true. I mean, I do see that golden language, right? You have a golden boy, right? That growing larger. Percy is physically growing, but he's growing in responsibility. He's growing in stature. So there is that comparison. But I th also think what's interesting is that silhouetted against the golden moon, Percy's head boy. So there's something about, you know, the gold moon is there and the moon is never the source of light. The moon is always reflecting. And so maybe here we have something to learn about Percy and his perhaps inflated sense of self and his desire for importance. But maybe, I don't know, maybe he's just the moon, uh, like he's reflecting the brilliance of others. Yeah. Oh, man. I I think it's an amazing way to think of Percy as we go through these books. Like Harry and the trio are a planet, and he's just this cold, dead rock sort of like floating in their wake. And a moon waxes and wanes, right? The moon is not always true. So his kind of this sense of betrayal that the Weasleys feel about his allegiance to the ministry instead of the family. I really like that Florilegia... I mean, in your your picking Percy is making us think more about Percy. I wonder he's going to become a major character later in the series. But I wonder what, like a moon, like what 
he is showing to us and what he has shown to us so far in the books that we've maybe missed. Let me read it and let's see where we can go. I'm going to read them backwards. Silhouetted against the golden moon and growing larger every moment, Percy's head boy. Ooh, the thing that stands out for me this time is every moment. And the fact that Percy's head boy, right, there's a change in his ontology. Who he is or that the labels that he has has changed. There's a change in his way of being. And to me, there's something interesting about that combination of every moment and Percy's head boy because, I mean, it's an obvious point, but like everything is always changing and the stability that we feel is never as stable as we think it is. Even the moon is an image of, right, it's always turning and the tides that it pulls are always going in or going out. That There's this imagery of change that I think is is important for Percy to remember because this place that he holds of status and reputation and power is not going to last forever. Yeah, I mean, he in the photo, you know, in Egypt, they're all there to visit Bill. And yet, like, Percy is there wearing his head boy badge in the Daily Prophet. This is supposed to be a story about their family going on a trip. It's not supposed to be about him. But it's for Percy, it's always about him. It's just always about him. Let it go, Percy. (laughs) And this is beautiful in this language, silhouetted against the golden moon. You know, when you look up at the moon and it's bright and there's a silhouette in front of it, you can't actually see the thing itself. It's just an outline and and a shape. And I think in some ways that's true of Percy as well in these pages is that although he is looming large in a lot of ways – Whether he doesn't open his hearts to us in the pages or whether we just don't learn enough about him, it is this sort of abstract figure that he remains. And, you know, it's just making me think of people in my life who loom large but who I actually don't know that well. Yeah, there's a lot about the silhouette. And knowing what, you know, where this line comes from in the book, it's – We know that eventually the thing that's growing larger every moment is going to be revealed. We're going to find out. When something is in silhouette, sometimes you never figure out what it is. But in this case, we do. You know, who Percy is will get closer and closer to us until we do find out who he is. But at this point in the book, all we see of Percy is this outline, is this, you know, head boy, badge wearing, proud, prat. This week's voicemail is from Jen Radke, who sent us this note in early March. Hi, Casper and Vanessa. My name is Jen. I'm calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you so much for creating this podcast. I love it. It's fantastic. And I'm so happy I've gotten my husband and friends into it as well. I find that often when I'm listening, I will find sparklets from things you say. There there has been an instance in which I have literally pulled over on the side of the highway to write something down in the little journal I keep in my bag. And it was fun to learn about Florilegia because I've been doing it with this journal and didn't know it was a thing, but it's a thing. So while listening to the final episode of season two, I wrote down some sparklets and I thought I would read them to you and see what we can make of them. The first one was, if you're telling a story, never make yourself the hero. You can't trust people in authority. 
I want to live in a world in which I want to follow the rules. Nobody does anything alone, gone but not forgotten. With the help of other people, she is able to be freed. When I put all these together, I couldn't help but think about International Women's Day this past week and how so many women have gone before me to fight for our rights and equal rights. And I can't name these women, but they're gone but not forgotten. And I'm so grateful for these rebellious women who didn't just trust in authority and they strive to create a world in which we want to gladly follow the rules and... And so I'm wondering what you make of these sparklets I've pulled together. Thank you so much for the incredible work you've been doing. I love it. And I can't wait for my stickers to arrive. Jen, what I particularly love about your voicemail is that it's not that you're now using the podcast as a sacred text, although that's very flattering. But I love the idea that you are writing down things that inspire you from your life and using those as sparklets and creating florilegia from them. Because I think that that's right. I think we have to take inspiration from all around us and be creating meaningful things from them. So I see that as an invitation to myself to be writing down things that friends say or, you know, just take inspiration where I can get it and love it and harness it. So thank you so much for that really beautiful voicemail and for listening and your stickers will be on their way soon. Thanks, Jen. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And I thought I might bless Ron, because there's a fairly comedic moment that happens in this chapter where where Ron uses a telephone for the first time and is trying to get Harry on the phone, but he, you know, he doesn't realize he doesn't have to shout, so he shouts and Vernon gets angry. But it, it's just struck me how scary it can be to do something for the first time, and that I'm sure that Ron you know, was a little nervous. And, you know, he he didn't do it quite right. But, you know, if he'd had a sympathetic ear on the other end, he would have been just fine. So this blessing is for anyone who's tried something maybe for the first time and it it didn't go well, or, you know, you felt embarrassed or, or, or you were hurt in some way. And to not give up and to, you know, just give it another try. Because Ron will no doubt use the telephone again. And so, I, yeah, just a blessing for anyone who needs some encouragement to keep going because it's worth doing. My blessing is for a beautiful moment between two women in this chapter. And that is for the moment in which Hedwig and Hermione meet in order to come together to give Harry not just any present, but a perfect birthday present. Harry thinks that Hermione is going to just have gotten him a book, but instead she got him this amazing like broom servicing kit. And she thought of it in France while she was on vacation. And Hedwig thought ahead and made sure to get to Hermione. And it's such a beautiful moment of kindness and gift giving and, you know, proper gift giving and honoring of someone, celebrating someone, I think takes a lot of effort and planning and thinking about who they are, not what you want to give them, but what they actually want. And I just think that this is two creatures really thinking outside of themselves and doing a beautiful job at that. So my blessing is for Hedwig and Hermione and for all generous people who spend time figuring out how to honor the people who they love. 
You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Please join us at one of our live shows. Tickets are on sale now for our West Coast tour in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, and Portland. And check back soon for tickets for Philadelphia, New York, and Washington, D.C. And please join us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. And next week, we'll be reading Chapter 2, Aunt Marge's Big Mistake, through the theme of family. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkyle, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great podcasts at panoply.fm. This week, we'd like to thank Jen Radke for sending in our voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Season 3. Series 3. Oh, did I say season? <laughs> no. It is season I know. <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to be a jerk. Did it work? You are a jerk. <laughs> yeah. I was like-